VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. We meet again, episode 53. Hi, I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week, a very interesting interview. Tom Straw is with us. And Tom Straw is very much a, a renaissance man, you know, kind of like me, where he has reinvented himself any number of times. He was a disc jockey. He was a radio station program director at some big stations in Los Angeles and Seattle. And then he became a TV weather guy in St. Louis. Talk about a left turn. He became a TV comedy writer and producer and worked on such shows as Night Court, Dave's World, Grace Under Fire, Nurses, Cosby. And then, again, another left turn. He wrote and produced Nurse Jackie. And then, for good measure, he also wrote jokes. He was a writer for Late Night with Craig Ferguson. Okay, but there's more. He is also a novelist. He has written and sold a number of mystery novels. His latest out now is called Buzz Killer. But you may know him by another name. He is a New York Times best-selling author, but you might know him as Richard Castle. Yes, he is the guy who was the ghostwriter on all of the Richard Castle novels that were in the New York Times bestseller list. One was actually number one. So he is a number one best-selling author, but you probably don't know his name. How did he get that gig? Why did he take that gig? How did he move from sitcom writing to drama to novel writing? Uh, there's a lot to talk about with Tom Straw, and that's coming up right now because, I mean, I'm curious. You're a comedy writer, and then you write about murder? How does that happen? We'll find out. Hollywood and the Fine. So is there a dark dormant side to you? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Uh, there could be. You know, even as I enjoyed situation comedies growing up, and I like a laugh as good as the next guy can. Uh-huh. That. uh-huh. Um, I mean, just look at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't. No, stop. Stop. Please don't look at me. He has this big, dark cloak. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm like Amadeus's father. You know? um, but... Um, I, I also, while I was enjoying watching comedies, you know, I loved The Fugitive and, and I loved The Name of the Game and I loved uh, a lot of the dramas, uh, Combat, you know, although that certainly wouldn't be mystery. But um, there is a part of me that is, is drawn to that. Plus, I'm a very big reader. I always have been. And a lot of my reading goes to, uh, you know, mystery books and thrillers and things like that. And I always wanted to write a book and... Um, so when I decided to do that, I chose something that had a murder. Hmm. In it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's just, it is a, it is an attraction. It is something, you know, uh, I'm thinking of other shows I liked Hill Street Blues, for instance, and, uh, 
uh, Columbo. I love trying to solve the mystery of, well, of course, that was more like a, how's he going to catch him more than who did it? So did you read how-to books? Did you start four novels and put them down? Did you take courses? Uh, how did you go about doing this? It's a great question. I, I did have a, a novel that I started in the 80s that was just terrible. It was awful. and I, <laughs> Not as bad as the novel I started in the yeah. 80s. <laughs> so I think we all have sort of the bad one. You know, there's a great story that I heard of uh, Chuck Jones, who was the, uh, you know, the cartoonist. From uh, Warner Brothers. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he uh, tells a story of how when he wanted to be a cartoonist, he took a class. And the, the teacher said he, he brought out like a, a reams and reams and reams of paper and he put them on his desk. And he said, everybody has a thousand bad cartoons in them. Start getting yours out now. <laughs> and, and, and so I always think of that like at that failed first book. It's like, okay, that's the pancake. You know, it's the first one off the grill. You right, away. right. Um, but I didn't really formally take courses. I, I, what I really did was I tried to apply some of the principles that I learned in screenwriting and in TV writing um, and frankly, again, I'm coming back to it, things that I learned from you when I was trying to figure out how to be a writer and then was in writer's rooms with you and saw how you constructed uh, a story. See, this is why he's a guest. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's actually quite true because it, I think it's the same for a really good comedy as it is for a really good drama, and that is that you have a structure. You have a beginning and a middle and end. You have cause and effect in what all the characters do. The scenes have to take you to the next thing. It's not and then and then and then. It's and therefore and therefore and therefore. So applying that education that I got in sitcom uh, and then reading Adventures in the Screen Trade um, uh, on writing by Stephen King or The Art of the Novel by John Gardner, uh, I did try to sort of self-educate of like, okay, what are the components of a book? And plus I read a lot of them. Well, you obviously did a good enough job that your first novel was published. It was, and uh, and it's still it's still available <laughs> on, <laughs> on Amazon. I've got a few in my garage. You could probably uh, uh, get pretty cheap too. But yes, and, and it was. It took me three years to write. Um, I mean, no, it wasn't three years of continuously writing. I mean, right. I had yeah, you ate. I ate. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I, did, I, I, I went shopping a few times. Uh-huh. I have a very clean office. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, things happen. You have to kind of like make a living too. So I, uh, I had finished showrunning Cosby. Um, that's when I got to work on that. And then I ended that's up... That's the second Cosby. The that's second the one Cosby. on CBS. Right. Uh-huh. Then I was writing. I also wrote a, a spec uh, feature with Gene Wilder. And then I ended up running Whoopi. Uh, this, the TV series Whoopi with Whoopi Goldberg uh, for a while. So th- there were a lot of things that interrupted my what I thought would be my plan to sit down and just write a book. Right. So the three years are kind of an accumulation. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get a publisher. Um, that publisher, um, which is now out of business, <laughs> uh, <laughs> although they, they were bought by a bigger company and therefore they were absorbed. Yeah, boy, there's a lot of that. There, yeah. There's a lot of the big fish eating the small mm-hmm. ones. And, mm-hmm. and this was a, a big company that came and they bought this uh, publisher and they wanted their nonfiction books. So that told me, okay, there's not going to be a sequel. Right. Uh, but my editor went to Hyperion, which is owned by ABC, or at least was at the time. Okay. And he took me to lunch one day, and he said, you know, there's a new show coming on called Castle. 
And uh, the premise of the show is that it's a famous, like a James Patterson or Stephen King kind of mystery writer who's sort of lost his muse and he's looking to start, you know, restart his uh, joy in his work. Um, And then he ends up on a ride along with this woman who's a cop who he has this thing for. And what ABC had the idea was let's put out a book as if it were written by the author that's on the, uh, the character in the show. Richard so as Castle. if Richard Castle himself wrote right. a book. Uh-huh. So the question at lunch was, how would you feel about ghostwriting a book as Richard Castle? Okay. And you know what? I, I, first of all, I, I liked and trusted the editor enough that I knew that he wouldn't take me down a course that I didn't want to go on. Um, I, and, I, and I was intrigued by it. And I, so I thought, yeah. And, and there was another aspect to it, too which is that they wanted to get the first book out online uh, in publishing each of the first 10 chapters sequentially in a countdown to the premiere of the second season of the show. So that meant, because normally, you know, you write a book and you have the opportunity to go back and rewrite the beginning Uh and all like that. It meant that once your chapter was sent off, that's it. It's locked. Yes. As I said to Andrew Marlowe, who created Castle and is is still a friend of mine and and we, we worked so well together. I loved working with him as a collaborator on this. I said, I feel like I'm throwing mailbags off a moving train. <laughs> Every, I finish a chapter and out it goes, and then I just go back and write the other one. And what I had to do, Ken, is when I um, – the, the first five chapters of the book were already published, and I was still writing the book. Wow. And now, you knew who the murderer was. I did. Right? But you, but you know what happened is, as you point out, I couldn't go back and revise the stuff that had already been published. So what I had to do is take some of my clues and repurpose them. <laughs> so I had to kind of figure out, okay, well, so this happened. How can I make it? Because when I got to the end, I boxed myself in. Right. And so I had to kind of uh, worm my way out. What happened with that is that it was supposed to have been a gimmick. It was supposed to have been straight to paperback after that, you know, and a one-off. Mm-hmm. And it debuted at, or it didn't debut at number six, but it went to number six in the New York Times wow. when it came out. Yeah. Second one, I think, was number three or four. And the third Castle book, Heat Rises, debuted at number one on the New York Times. So wow. I did seven of those. Isn't that bizarre, though? I mean, you know, you are a number one New York Times best-selling author, and yet you can't tell anybody. <laughs> Nobody knows my name. I had one of those uh, great uh, moments. Uh, my wife and I were visiting Boston. The first book had just come out. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting at a restaurant on Newbury Street, and at the table behind us, uh, husband and wife are having dinner, and uh, it's, you, you, I'm hearing, no, you see, honey, it's not really Castle who writes the books. He's just, an, uh, that's a character, and he's not really the author, and he's trying to explain to his wife what the <laughs> dynamic of it, and I, I lean forward to my wife, and I said, should I turn around and say, perhaps I can enlighten you here. <laughs> uh, it's very funny to be around and hear people talking about something that you can't. And the very next day, I went to um, a bookstore, uh, and uh, I wanted to get a couple copies of it because some friends in Boston. Right. Uh, and uh, they were sold out. So the the guy at Borders said, well, I'm gonna, I'll look and see if we have them at one of our other stores. And as he's looking it up, he's saying to me, you know, Richard Castle doesn't really write these. <laughs> you really? And I said, oh, really? <laughs> and he says, yeah, they say it's James Patterson. And I said, oh, do they? 
And I thought, do I want to or don't I? No. I said, uh, it's like saying there's no Santa Claus. I wanted to let it go. So there's no book signing, obviously, but did Nathan Fillion go around and (laughs) sign the book? He did, but here's the thing about Nathan, and I really, really respect him highly for this, is that he would go to the book signings and people in the audience during the Q&A, and there'd be like 500 people would show up, which is a lot for (laughs) a book signing. Sure. It Uh, was eight for mine, so yeah. I I went to Baskin Robbins and grabbed people and said, hey, come on in, I'll I'll, I'll give you a book. That's how I got eight. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But he, to his credit, he would say, the inevitable question from the audience would be, did you write the book? And he would always say, no, I didn't. Richard Castle did. Okay, and and that was his way of acknowledging that there was something going on, not really killing the the mojo of it. Uh, that mystery of who wrote it uh, was part of the fun. Uh, one of the things that they did on Castle is they announced in their public relations that the author, the true author of these books, has been on Castle. Oh, so you were on Castle. I was on Castle. Okay, once. what did, what did you do? I was at the book launch party of the first book with Nathan Fillion. Oh, <laughs> isn't that funny? Uh, but what they also had as a conceit on that show, which was brilliant, I thought, is in the first season they always had a poker game, a writer's poker game, right, with the real guys. Yeah, and yeah. so you'd sit there, and and there's Dennis Lehane, and there's Michael Connolly, and. Uh, uh, the late great Stephen J. Cannell, mm-hmm. and um, who am I leaving out? Um, but anyway, so and James Patterson, of course, right. um, Raymond Chandler, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> only in spirit, uh-huh. uh, in the empty chair. But um, so the speculation was, could it have been any one of these guys? And mean, meanwhile, it was just little old me. <laughs> okay, so how do you plot a book like that? I mean, do you uh, keep tabs of different murders? Um, are you, like, always thinking of weird, strange murders? Uh, h- how do you do that? I go out and commit them. <laughs> and then I say... Just te- your method. Yeah. Oh, you're a method writer. This could yeah. work. Mm-hmm. I think this could work. I think if the guy does this and I do that... Um, yeah, you know, the, this is get back to the, you know, my wife saying, who are you, is that I'm always kind of, like, seeing something going, well, you know... Um, you know, stuff like, I mean, okay, there's a little peek into my crazy, uh, you know, somebody's going to use this now in a book, but when we were flying out here, uh, to LA, right. Um, we were noticing in the airport in New York, how many people were getting on the plane that had dogs, right. And the dogs were on leashes. They weren't in carriers. One was too big. It couldn't, you know, they probably Mm -hmm. had to buy a ticket for the dog. And I thought, boy, that would be a great murder weapon. You know, the TSA can search you for, you know, weapons, but what if your dog on command you know, will turn vicious. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, please, I hope that never, ever happens. Um, but I'm always kind of thinking of the turn. I'm always trying to think of, um, you and I went one night to see Larry Gelbart speak at uh, Universal. I don't know if you remember that. Um, I do. Yeah. yeah. And and he used a phrase um, during the Q&A that really has always stayed in my head. As he says, it was a little easier in the early days of television because there weren't so many footprints in the snow. Mm-hmm. there's a lot of footprints in the snow in mystery now. And so the idea of, okay, how can I, it's not really even how can I be tricky. It's how can I reward a reader who is trying to play this little game with me of whodunit? How can I make them feel like they're getting my best 
and so that they can be challenged as they try to solve the puzzle too. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, it's a little psychological, but I, that reader's compact is extremely important to me. I really care about their experience because that's really how I, I'm more a reader than a writer. Now, have you ever written one of your books and then two years later you're reading Sue Grafton or something and you go, oh, Christ, it's the same damn murder? Well, you know, the thing that would upset me more would be if I wrote it and then realized that two years ago she had written it. Oh. <laughs> that would be, I'm serious, that would be the thing that would drive me crazy. Uh-huh. But, you know, tell me you haven't been there too. I've, I've written uh, like spec features, sure. spec comedies. And then I go to the movies that night, and there's somebody saying the line in the film mm-hmm. or something very similar right, to it. Right. It's their joke now. I can't use it. Yeah. Um, some things just do get in the ozone. There is stuff in the groundwater. And so we all kind of watch the same newscasts. We all kind of are reading the same papers uh, on the Internet surfing and whatnot. So it's inevitable that we're going to come close on some occasions. Um, and so uh, I would feel bad. As I say, I would feel worse if it if it were reversed and it were I. Right. Okay, so you do seven castle books, but still it's got to just kind of, you know... Piss me off? Piss you off a little bit. <laughs> you know, not to have your own name attached to a book. And so now you do. You have yes. a new book, Buzz Killer, available on Amazon. Yes. And uh, it's all yours. And it also must have been very freeing to be able to create your own characters. It was. And, and you know, the feedback I have gotten so far, in, in, including, you know, from, uh, like, you know, not just readers, but also uh, writers I respect, uh, agents I respect, is that they feel that there's a sort of a limberness and there's a sort of a, a, a darkness to it that didn't exist in the Castle books. Uh-huh. You know, I, I think probably in the back of my mind, although I was never told this, I was probably trying to honor the tone of the sure. Castle show sure. as best I can. That's part of the job. Understanding yeah. that audience. Nobody ever said to me, hey, don't do that. Right. But in my own head, I suppose I was always saying, let me mm-hmm. just stay in the slipstream. With the well, tone. again, it's the same thing as a writer. If you are writing an episode of Castle, mm-hmm. you are going to have to write it to their specifications, not your own. Because exactly. if you do and you use your own voice, it's going to get rewritten. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I remember uh, you and I had a conversation. I, I, I said to you as I was beginning this book, because in Buzzkiller, um, I wanted to do a show that was still about uh, crime and crime solving, but I wanted to do it outside the yellow tape. I wanted to have, uh, instead of cops, I wanted to be a public defender and a defrocked NYPD uh, detective. Uh, in the Outside surveillance. the Yellow Tape. That's a good title, by the you way. Know, hey, it's coming, buddy. It's coming. <laughs> as long as Sue Grafton doesn't get there first. Why is for Yellow Tape right. outside a bit? Please. <laughs> um, but um, uh, I'm forgetting what my point was. My, I, I guess what I was going to say is that what I wanted to do was to go to the place where um, I could be outside that, that realm where, where, where you're not doing cops, but you're doing people against cops. Right. And I remember saying to you, this is a little tough because, you know, there's a lot of obstacles when you're, 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 um, you're not a cop because you don't have subpoena power. You can't mm-hmm. call somebody in and there's a lot of trouble. Right. And you said to me, great, problems, obstacles, conflict. That's exactly what you need in a book. Right. And, and, and that sort of gave me the sort of like 
soothing moment of, okay, yes, uh, embrace the problems, use the problems and see them for what they are, which is stuff that's going to create fireworks. You know, it's a really, really good book. I do recommend it. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is along the way you spell out some of the procedures mm-hmm. and some of the thought process. And there was a lot of stuff in that book that I didn't know. Mm. Well, you know, uh, part of the fun of writing a book for me is getting an education. Um, I don't, you know, they say write what you know. Um, and I think that's partially true, but I think part of it is I want to learn. And, and, and in learning, I want to share what I've learned and, and use what I've learned to tell uh, uh, the truth. And I don't mean truth like um, truth just in the American way. I mean the truth of like what life is really like. What do people really have to do to solve a crime? Right. Um, and so I do a lot of research. Uh, I have a friend who uh, writes some mysteries, and it kind of annoys me because he'll he'll read one of my books and he'll say kind of what you said, which is, "Boy, you do have all this detail in here and all this this how to." And he says, "In mine, I just make it up." And I and I think to myself, you know, it, it kind of like reads like it. You know, I won't name his name, but you know, I, I it it feels that way. Um, I, for instance, public defenders. I don't. I'm not a lawyer. I spent. I went to the public defender in Brooklyn. I went to the public defender's office in Manhattan. I went to the uh, the, the the Criminal Justice Association in Manhattan, and I spent days with these people. And they took me to school on how it all works. They let me tour the offices. They let me hang out. And I truly not only got the sense of how it works, but I got ideas for the book. In some of my most fun research was with the uh, ex-detectives that I, I met with from the Technical Assistance Response Unit. These are the NYPD cops who... Um, basically perform all of the video surveillance. They take the, f- the photographs of the mobsters at funerals so they can keep the mug books updated. Mm-hmm. Uh, when there's a hostage situation, they're the guys who, uh, inst- and women, who install the, the, the bat phones so that the negotiator can work it out. Yeah. They did our wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's who that was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just a fern. Yeah. <laughs> But these guys had such great stories. And, um, you know, uh, it's controversial because some of the things they do are, and this is what, again, it's the obstacles you want. Right. Um, some of the things are questionable. The, the technical assistance response unit also, they were the unit that uh, hosed video of the protesters uh, during the 1% or uh, the 99%. Uh, right thing down mm-hmm. on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not supposed to do that. There's a, there's a thing called the Hanshue Accord. See, I did, have, did learn a few things. Wow. Which is all about the court saying, based on the Hanshue case, that you cannot just video people who are lawfully protesting. You know, they're not breaking the law. You can't, you can't do that. Right. So what that does is that gave me, that, that information gave me the real spark between my two romantic characters, where she's a fiery public defender steeped in morals and ethics and constitutional rights. And her investigator is an ex-cop who used to do the stuff that she finds reprehensible. So it made for a really volatile mix. You know, and it's the one thing that I always tell students, anybody, whether you're going to write a sitcom or a book or a drama, do research. You, you know, I mean, so many rich, interesting stories will emerge 
that you had no idea about. And it's also fun. To me, that's the fun part of the job. You know, if you're going to do a, a pilot about the, um, you know, Department of Water and Power. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. You know? <laughs> and and who isn't? Yes. Who isn't? Um yeah, you know, you hang around some of those people and you find out some of those stories and a lot of things. I mean, I enjoy when I watch a show or when I read a book and it takes me into a world that I don't know. Right. And the, 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 the trick is to not do Wikipedia. The trick is to use the research to uh, tell a human story, uh, not to be wonky um, I mean, I, I guess you could say Tom Clancy did a great job with the submarine movies because, or the books because he always knew the ins and outs of how a sub worked and all right. that stuff and great research and made it entertaining. But for me, it's really about how can I take that stuff I'm learning and use it to, to tell a story? And the story is really everything. Right. How does it affect the characters? Um, there's a scene in the book you may recall about this underground chase that they had under the subway in yeah. this vast underworld. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I stumbled upon that information. I was actually watching uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Company while I was in Vermont, and they did a story about this thing that is being developed in New York called the Low Line, which is a pun on the High Line, where there's an acre underground of just this desiccated old 100-year-old subway station that's now dead, and here's what it looks like. And I thought, oh, my God, I could put a great chase in there. <laughs> and so I figured out how to do it. I, 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 I got pictures of it. I, I did all the research to, f- to find out exactly what it was and used it in the book as what I thought was a pretty exciting scene. Now, some authors will outline their books. Some authors will know exactly who did it and what the circumstances are. And there's others that will just sit down and write chapter one and just go. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, each has their justification saying, uh, you know, if if you like to outline, you know, you need to know where you're going. Otherwise, you know, you could just be wandering in the desert for 40 years. And the other side says, yeah, but if I don't know... Mm-hmm. some of the things down the line, then the readers won't either, and it'll be much harder for the readers to predict what's going to happen. Where do you fall? I, I sort of fall in the middle, and I'm trying to do less and less outlining. I, I tend to do a lot. You know, in I would have to say in general fiction, it's probably easier to just kind of say, here's where my characters are beginning, and I'm going to follow them through. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to generalize to say it's easy. I'm just saying it's just that's probably a better preferable method okay um when you're doing a murder mystery you and and you you need to not only know who did it but also find the way to engage your reader to surprise them in a way that is is uh fair right in other words don't trick them don't don't have something come in at the 11th hour right um to plant those to give them uh i think it was ruth rendell said you have to give the um, you have to give the reader fair clues that uh, so that when it does get solved, um, they, can, they can say that they were given a chance. Right. Um, and so in order to do that, I think I have to do plotting um, because I need to plant things in a way that are going to be artful uh, and also not come at the last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's tenets, things like, you know, Michael Connolly, uh, who does, he's a fabulous crime writer, fabulous. He says, you know, you've got to meet your killer in the first 50 pages. 
Now, could it be 60? Could it be 80? <laughs> yes, it could. But, but his point is well taken. Don't introduce your murderer, you know, in the, in the second to the last chapter. It's not fair to the reader to do that. Um, so I'm plotting, yes. I'm doing the pillars because I have to have them. But what I'm trying to do, and I think the greater question is, how do you keep the story feeling alive and spontaneous mm-hmm. so that it isn't just a cookbook? Right. Right. How long does it take you to write a novel? Um, you know, it's funny. It took me three years, as I mentioned, to write the Trigger episode. The first Castle book I had to write so fast, so fast, um, that I wrote that, I guess, in about two months. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, thereafter, when things got into a more sane rhythm, uh, generally I would take a, I, I, and what I do is I take a month to outline and then I take three months to write. Okay. Um, and then do you like set it aside for a month and then come back with a fresh eye and do a rewrite? How many drafts do you do of a novel? No, I say here, these are stone tablets. Don't you dare touch them. <laughs> um, you know what? Rosetta actually, stone. No, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, I suppose it, I don't, I need to knock wood when I say this, but I don't generally end up having to do a lot of revising. I did on the first book. That's why it took so long because mm-hmm. it was a learning curve. Right, I, right. First of all, I wrote one third more book than I needed mm-hmm. and I needed to figure out how to get that out. Now that I kind of know the groove, um, every book is different. Every book is difficult. Right. Um, and, and they're unique. Um, but I tend to really, I, 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 I pay so much attention to my first drafts that by the time I'm done, I'm really polishing more than wholesale rewriting. Uh, and that's just the way it works out. And, you know, I'll turn it into the editor and then like in the castle books, Andrew Marlowe and the editor would weigh in with their notes. And what it got to be is I turn in a whole like 400 page manuscript and I would get a notes call that would be two hours. And the revisions would be done in three days. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, well, you know I, what you're doing now. I know too. what I'm doing yeah. and they know I know what I'm doing and I've communicated to them what I'm doing. Right. Um, you know, and with Castle, it eventually reached a point where I didn't even have to turn in an outline. You know, they just said, go ahead. You know, when you, when you have a number one New York Times bestseller, mm-hmm. they tend to let you have your head a little right. bit. Um, but also, again, I can't say this enough. Andrew Marlowe was so great to work with. Um, we saw the same show that he was doing. And so I interpreted that show in the books in a way that I knew that he was seeing. Plus, I was a showrunner, so we spoke the same language. Right. Um, so that by the time I delivered the product, it was generally what we both saw at the beginning. Right. And again, to talk about your versatility, as you're writing some of these castle books and all, you're also producing Nurse Jackie. Yes. And for a while, you were like the head writer of Craig Ferguson's late night show. I was one of the writers on <laughs> Craig Ferguson, and that's actually when the castle books started. Here's my crazy day, and you remember, because we were seeing each other back then Mm -hmm. a lot, is um, I would go, I had to be at the table with Craig and the other writers to talk about monologue topics and so forth at 10 a.m. every day at CBS. Mm -hmm. Um, The beauty of the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson is that you write like a demon all day long. And at 6 o'clock, the show's over, and there's no post-production. That's right. You're done. You're done. Yeah. You're D-O-N-E done. So mm-hmm. I would then, like a bat out of hell, leave CBS. I would uh, grab a bite of dinner, uh, take a moment to kind of like be human. And then by, oh, I would say 9 o'clock at night, I'm at my desk, 
and I would write Castle until 2 a.m., 3 a.m., um, get up at 6.30 or 7. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, get on the Internet to see what's happening in the news so I would have monologue ideas, right? Maybe work in a run if I could. Um, and then kind of look at my pages from the night before so they're fresh in my head and then just repeat and repeat and then gee, I can't wait for the weekend so I can write the novel all day long. (laughs) And that's, you know what? It's how you get it done. Um, It's the difference for me between people who say they want to write and people who do write. Um, It's about about putting those words down and and doing your best you can. No, it's not always going to be great. And sometimes you have to say, this is crap. I, I spent four hours last night and this is terrible. And you just put that away and you do four more that are better. Can't wait for the muse, can you? <laughs> you cannot wait for the muse. It's, it's um, you know, there's something wonderful right away, if you remember the name, the mm-hmm. title of that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to be able to do it on demand. And it's not always going to be perfect. It's not always going to be great. But if you don't do something, you don't have anything to revise. Right, right. Good advice. And the book is called Buzz Killer. Indeed. One final question. Where is it available? Uh, is that yeah, it? yeah, no, yeah. Where is it available? It on might, Amazon, it perhaps? Might be in, in Kindle and in uh, print. Okay. Amazon. Yeah. All right. Um, you should voice the uh, the book on tape. You know, I've been told that. Um, maybe I will. You know, a lot of people have said that you sound like Dick Cavett. Yes, they do. Um, and, he's been imitating me since I was in high school. <laughs> so. And when I was doing Orioles baseball. And Larry King was still living in Washington, D.C. He thought that I sounded like Dick Cavett. <laughs> and I don't think I sound like you at all. Yeah, no, you no. Know. Maybe the same, you know, we've seen the same movies and we played the same records on the radio or something. That but, could uh, be it. Okay, final question. Yep. This is a fanboy geeky question. All right. Uh, Nurse Jackie. Yep. I love Edie Falco. Tell me she was a dream. She was the absolute dream. Maybe, I, you know, for any of my other actor, actress friends who are listening, I don't want to bother anybody. Let's just say that she was one of the two best I ever, ever, ever worked with. I, I, I adore her. Um, what I would say about Edie Falco is that she has all of that talent and she does not have the diva gene. She picks up a tray and waits in line with everyone else to eat. Um, on the set, she doesn't sit in her dressing room. She sits out in what we would call video village where basically, you know, where the monitors are. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so she's sitting there, you know, joking around with everybody. And then here's the thing. She's, you know, she's laughing at a joke you've told or she tells one herself and then she's, oh, wait, I got to go do a thing. And she goes out on the set and makes you cry, <laughs> you know, and then comes back in and, and picks up where she left off. Uh-huh. Um, totally gracious, totally committed to her work. And something that really, really counts for me is she really cares about the company, meaning the crew and the cast. Um, she, the only time there was ever any friction was when she felt, you know, the crew's working too late at night. And it wasn't like she was. She, you know, she wasn't in every single scene. Right. And we mm-hmm. would make it so that she wouldn't have the horrible hours as best we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she would always lobby for other people. And whatever good there was in that series, I think it's because, you know, it's like they say the fish stinks from the head down. But I think the opposite is also true, is when you have somebody with power who is in charge of the set, basically, the quarterback of the show, 
um, she set the tone, and the tone was a wonderful one. I remember Michael Douglas once saying that you have to take responsibility as the star. You do. Yeah. And when you have a star like that, there isn't anything you won't do. And and, and not not just the writers, but the crew. Everybody is working a little extra hard because it's for her. Great. Tom, thank you so much. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Again, what is the book? The book is called Buzzkiller. And where can you get it? Amazon.com, written by Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) Written by Tom Straw. And the Dick Cavett Show continues after this. Only because he was such a good guest and I really, really did like the book. I'm going to plug it again, Buzz Killer by Tom Straw, and it is available in many different formats on Amazon. That's going to do it for this week. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Randy Thomas. You have any comments, anything you want to get off your chest? Well, you can always email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. And you can always follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, Instagram, Hollywood, and Levine. We will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.